I guess that you never need it. Sports cards after hours keep the hobby heated. Updates hobby top like you never seen it. Sports cards live and I can never beat it. Sports cards is a lifestyle. Sports cards and we live now. Welcome to another episode of Sports Cards Live with your host, Jeremy Lee. All right. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode number 118 of Sports Cards Live. It is Saturday night, October the 16th, 2021. My name is Jeremy Lee. I do want to thank last Saturday's guest. We had Darren Prince, Agent DP, as well as Scott Rogowski join the shows. Thank you to both of them. If you would like to watch those in syndication, they are both available on the YouTube channel, as always. Later tonight on After Hours, our guest will be Ethan Janes of Instagram and eBay's GradedSports.Cards. Check it out. We're going to have a great conversation later on tonight. And tomorrow on Collectible Live, my guest will be Mike Hefner and Jordan, Mike Hefner and or Jordan Gilroy of Leland's Auctions. We will have them. We go live tomorrow at 7 p.m. Eastern on the Collectible App YouTube channel. And next Saturday on the show... I will be joined again by Adam Gray, the Real 27 guy, as we will cover the October PWCC Premier Auction Extended Bidding. I want to shout out my guys at The Big Three Hockey. Check them out. As always, the Instagram account has tons of awesome, awesome cards, and they just keep seeming to be adding to them. So give them a follow on Instagram. Also, don't forget the Toronto Sport Card Expo is coming up November 11th to 14th. I'm going to be there. Cannot wait. Hope to see a bunch of you there. And the following weekend in Vancouver for the Western Canadian show, it's going to be a blast as well, November 19th to 21st. Check out bossashows.com. I will put those up on the ticker right now. Both both dates, show dates and websites are there for you right now. Check them out. If you can make it there, it would be awesome to see you all there. Also, check out Channel Supporter Whatnot app for one-minute auctions. Buy it now shows hosted around the clock by some of the best breakers in the hobby safe environment, community of collectors and buyers. They also have other collectibles, including Pokemon, Funkos, uh, MetaZoo, comics, and more. And I want to shout out Graded Flex uh, right there. If you see that holder right there with those three precious metal gem Team of Solanis I have on my wall, that is a pretty awesome uh, display unit. So check that out, Graded Flex. And I want to thank all the podcast listeners, as always, Really appreciate you guys. And thanks to all you subscribers and viewers already uh, who have. And if you are not yet subscribed, please go ahead and do so. Would greatly appreciate that. As always, your questions, your comments are in play tonight. So don't be shy. Put them up there. Put them in the comments. And let's get to tonight's guest. All right. He is a hobby lifer turned auction house owner whose first taste of hobby goodness was 1992 Tops Baseball. He's built a reputation as being extremely knowledgeable and professional. His love is vintage. His favorite athlete of all time is Cal Ripken Jr. He's originally from Poughkeepsie, New York, currently hailing from New Jersey. Let's bring him out. Brian Dwyer, welcome to Sports Cards Live. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing well, thanks, Jeremy. Uh, thanks for having me. How, how are you doing up there? <laughs> I'm, doing, I'm doing good. I had a, a near, a near, I won't call it an emergency tonight, but, uh, you know, Saturday nights, my wife and I, we ordered dinner from Skip the Dishes. I don't know if he, it's it's a Canadian thing, probably, you know, where they pick up from all the restaurants. And uh, somehow the driver was directed to my office. So mm-hmm. it was like supposed to be here an hour before starting. Anyway, the food came like I, I just finished eating pretty much. So I like to usually have a little bit of a break between. I didn't get that tonight. Other than that, though, I am well. Thank you for asking. Yeah. yeah. No problem. So. Okay, well, we got some cool stuff here. Obviously, um, 
obviously you, you created some really cool news in August. And to me, when, and we're going to come back to this a little bit later, but to me, when the T206 Honus Wagner that you sold in August reclaimed the spot as the holder, the, the, record, the, the record holder of the most expensive card ever sold, it kind of made me feel like things were back to normal in the hobby. You know, we had this crazy ride. We've had this crazy ride for the last couple of years. We saw some cards sell for more than a Wagner had ever sold for. And up until then, the Wagner was always the number one card in the hobby. That kind of changed for a bit in terms of records. And then it, the record was reset thanks to you and, and your, your consigner and the card itself. So I want to just thank you for making the hobby feel like it was sort of back to some semblance of normalcy. Did uh, you know, without getting into to it too much, am I like, do you think I was alone in that feeling or, or did you ever, did you hear anything similar from others? No, I mean, we spent the whole week at the national this year with the card on display and a lot of people were rooting for it for exactly the reason you described, you know, uh, it, they, they said it's the granddaddy of baseball cards. It belongs up top. And we were happy we were able to deliver. Yeah. Well, yeah, that, that's great that you did. And what a great card. And we'll, we'll take a look at it a little bit later. I know you have it available. And I definitely want to say I'm sure everybody else does too. Uh, so let's let's get into it, though. Let's learn a little bit about you, Brian, your hobby history. Uh, you know, I alluded to your first taste of the hobby goodness was 92 Tops Baseball. Why don't you take us back, start there, and just let us learn a little bit about you as a hobbyist. Yeah, so 1992, I was six years old, and I think I was old enough for my parents to buy me a, a set of baseball cards or a pack of baseball cards and uh, and see what I did with it. And so I spent hours and days sorting it and, and alphabetizing the cards by players. And I think they realized that they stumbled onto something, and then that became an easy gift for me to get every Christmas or birthday or graduation, whatever the case may be, and never looked back. Um, so got a set of cards, mostly tops every year. And then it was about 1999 when things really changed for me. That was my first introduction to vintage. And I can tell you that story if you want, but that, that was a very formative year for me. Yeah. Let's, let, let's hear it. Let's hear what the form, the year that, that was formative for you. That's uh, that's interesting. Yeah. So 1999, 13 years old, growing up in Poughkeepsie, New York, like you alluded to. And uh, my best friend's dad gets the call that he's got to go empty his childhood home and his childhood room. And so he comes back to Poughkeepsie with uh, several shoeboxes full of baseball cards from the 50s and 60s. And he says, hey, I know you and, you know, his son, Evan, uh, collect baseball cards. Do you know anything about these? Are they good? And so I look through them and immediately my eyes just bug out. And there's Mantle, Clemente, Koufax, all the big names. And so he enlisted me at that ripe old age of 13 to research the cards, help them sell. I joined eBay, joined PSA, and uh, ended up doing my first consignment in 1999 at 13 for my, my buddy's dad. And how did that work out for you? I mean, yeah. It gave me a chance for the business. It worked out great. I got a, I got a nice little commission. You know, the cards... The cards were not nines and tens. They weren't even sixes and sevens. They were obviously well-loved and played with. But, uh, you know, we got somewhere in the neighborhood of $15,000, I think, at the time. And uh, for me to have twelve, fifteen hundred dollars $1,500 as a commission in my pocket, that was that was pretty good. So, uh, yeah, I, I loved it. And I look back on it with very fond memories. Yeah, no doubt. that. And, and do you feel like that particular, well, you did say that was a, a formative year for you. Do you feel that that, transaction itself or that arrangement is 
kind of what led you into the line of work you're in now? I think it really played a big part. I mean, I went to college with um, my eyes set on a career in finance. I got a degree in finance and I minored in accounting and uh, and I just could never get away from the baseball cards. I really loved the buying and the selling. And so I pursued it and obviously, you know, became good at it, I think. And uh, and here we are. Yeah. Cool. So tell us a little bit about what you collect and uh, and maybe any, any themes around your collecting. So I started off as a set collector. I think a lot of people do. Um, I When I got that taste of vintage, I thought, how cool would it be to collect these really old cards? So I started buying and selling and trading, uh, built sets going back into the 60s, very low grade, mixed grade. I was not condition conscious at all. For me, a hole in the card was better than a hole in my binder. And so I built those sets. I dabbled with cards from the 50s. And, uh, and then I went to college and I got a little bit more uh, knowledgeable. I got a little bit more selective and I started really focusing in on Hall of Famers. And, and so that's for the last uh, 15 years where my collecting has lied. Big names, Ruth's and Wagner and Cobb and Mantle and guys like that. And I'm sorry, I'm reaching for my pad because I want to write that quote down. A hole in the card is better than a hole in the binder. I've I've never heard that before, but I think that's a that's that's a great a great line would make for a great T-shirt. Well, there you uh, go. For sure. Yeah, that that that's awesome. So how far? So you were a set collector. How far? Uh, tell, give us a bit an idea of the range of set set years that you do have. How far back did you get? So in my adult life, I finished going back to '52, but uh, back when I was in college, I got back into the mid '60s. So now I've I've built all the sets from '52 onward. Um, but my collecting has shifted. You know, I tell people I've got the best collection in the world working at REA. So I've dabbled in other areas of collecting coins, currency, some political stuff, just, um, you know, interesting pieces that I can hang on my wall and display and see, see, see what I can get. And sometimes the buyers don't pick them up right away and you can enjoy them for a few extra days, uh, yourself as well. Right. Exactly. Um, So, and tell us a little bit about like, so you did that first deal, you got your commission, 1999 rolls around, eBay becomes something. How, how did you respond and, and how, what sort of opportunities, if any, did you see when eBay uh, came onto the scene as, a, as a, you know, a marketplace for sports cards? Yeah, I mean, to me, growing up in suburban New York and going to a show, I had um, uh, shows within pretty good close proximity to me. I loved the idea that I could go to a show in New York and and buy something and sell it to a guy that needed it in California or trade it to a guy in California for something that I needed that I didn't have access to. So that really got the wheels turning in my head about buying and selling and connecting collectors and and stuff like that. So um, yeah, I, I think eBay was a big deal for me. It was something I got to do with my dad. We, in 1999, registered together because I was very much a minor and uh we just made a hobby of it and you know take us back to uh you know in the mid to late 90s and even early 2000s uh you were in the game and grading was sort of becoming more and more integral to our hobby and and of course very important in the hobby speak a little bit if you can brian to sort of your perspective on grading back then and how you saw it evolve from the early days through till uh till now I mean, back then, even at 13, I knew that grading was the way to make people in California, for example, understand that what I was selling was real, to make sure that we didn't have a disagreement on the condition, 
um, and, and just to have that third party voice present in the transaction. And so that's why we use grading today. You know, obviously it's changed and it's become a lot more expensive than it was in 1999, but the root of grading is to eliminate conflicts, to ensure authenticity. And that's why we use it even today. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I mean, people often, you know, you hear all sorts of comments about grading uh, if you're if you're tuned into social media and that. But if, if you go back to the beginning of time, my, my best recollection understanding was that grading became a thing because we were really the advent of the Internet, being able to buy things remotely, sight unseen. And a grade actually kind of put you on a level playing field with the seller if the card happened to be graded in your based on your recollection, how long did it take for grading to really catch on amongst the, you know, the, the real veteran hobbyists? Were they reluctant at first? Well, you know, I think that um, some people were, I mean, there are still people that we encounter today that are reluctant to grading. I can't tell you how many collections we get on a weekly basis where collectors who have been doing this for 40 years have never even entertained the idea of putting their cobs or their Wagners or their Ruths and holders. Um, but back then, I do remember reading SMR and Beckett and other periodicals, and, and grading was a big thing. There were auction houses around. The registry was around. You know, people were embracing it, and obviously it's ballooned into just a behemoth today. Yeah, it, cer- it certainly has. Okay, I want to get into uh, you know the how you came to own REA and uh, you know its history before that. But before we do, we are going to go to the crowd, say hello to a few a few people, and see if we have any comments or questions so far. Uh, Studio Sports has a part of history on display tonight in that TOT two hundred six. Can't wait. Thank you, Studio. Yes, we uh, Brian will be showing the uh, the T two hundred six, the record breaking card. It's uh, it's it's out of the camera view right now, but I have a feeling it's only by a few inches. Uh, Troy, hello, Jeremy and Brian. Looking forward to it. Thank you for joining. Troy, Albert Jones, what's up with you? Frank, great to have you. Another A-list guest. Compliment for the guest. Brian, thank you very much, Frank. Dennis, good evening to you. Birds on a bat. Hello, Jeremy Pringle in the house. Tom Bullard in the house. Go Bills. Birds on the bat. Sweet pickup. I showed a card on Instagram today, which I don't have out right now. But thank you, Birds. Appreciate it. F Chiz, good evening. Good evening. Great to see you again. Facebook user, looking forward. Yeah, I can't wait for the Toronto Expo, guys. I will be there. I can't wait. Make sure y'all are coming. Steve Foley from South Florida, good evening. Birds on a Bat asks everyone to hit that like button for me. Thank you, Birds on a Bat. Appreciate it. Ped's Card Collection, good evening. Eric Sanderson to Orr. We got Game Time Gallery with us. Says, I was one of them rooting for the Wagner card to take the throne again. Yeah, so we have that in common, Game Time. For sure, for sure. Michael Ham, good evening to you. It's funny, Michael. I, I had in my notes last week, if I saw you, to wish you a happy birthday, but I didn't see you last week. So happy uh, one week belated birthday to you. One of one, great to see you from Australia. Colin Murray speaks to you. Ryan says, vintage rules. There's nothing better. Colin's a longtime vendor at the Toronto Expo. Jordan Hudson, good evening. We got uh, Jay Lee for president. I don't know about that. Oh, wait, lots of comments here. Here we go. Ped's Card Collection says, REA is the best in the game by far. Frank says, I love REA. Great great auctions. Yes, yes, for sure. Some agree. I love it. I love it. Business says, consigned with Brian and REA this week for the first time. They're a class act. So some some great feedback here for you, you, Brian. And it's funny just to everybody. I know you know this, Brian, because we've talked about it, but I've purchased two cards from you over the past I guess the first one was probably 
eight years ago. I don't, you, you'd know better. I think you might've checked it recently, but you'd know better than I do, but uh, I'll show them. I'll show them after when we're doing our show and tell a little bit later. Uh, Rich Klein. Good evening, Rich. Rich had nice, nice things to say about, uh, about REA and Brian as well. Nice to see you, Rich. As always, Daniel Busby, been waiting all day. I love to hear that. Thank you so much. Ped's Card Collection says, what is your take on the prices of modern cards and can it sustain? Brian, let's uh, let's put that one right there to you. I mean, I think obviously modern modern's had a, a day in the sun for a while. So uh, I think everybody collects what they like. And that's what I've always preached to people. You know, I'm a vintage guy, but I've got people that work for me that love the modern cards. We've got clients of ours that love the modern cards and beat down our door trying to get those high end trouts or or Luka Doncic or Giannis cards, you name it. So I think that modern cards are here to stay. And the same reason that I go back and, and collect the greats of the fifties. There'll be collectors that are going to go back and collect the greats today because you know, they're, they're old guys to them when they're ready to collect. So yeah, I think always people collect what you like and you'll never go wrong. Yeah. Well said. And I'm going to, I'm going to take it one step further this line of discussion, Brian, I think it's interesting. I'm glad to have you to, to actually go this way. And I thank Peds for, uh, for bringing it up, but you just said that, you know, it's the same reason why you like to go back 50 years and 50 years from now, people will be going back to today. What happens 50 years from now to the cards that you and I are collecting from 50 years ago? Because I there's a bit of a narrative I've I, I've come across in the hobby where people are saying, you know, yeah, today, you know, Kobe's, LeBron's, uh, Jeter's, Trout's, you know, McDavid's, Crosby's, the, you know, Brady's are going to be great for a very long time. And at what point are people going to stop collecting, you know, mantles and errands and and all, all guys from those from those eras, Gordy Howes and all that? And I I I think to myself, I don't know if that's ever going to happen because there's always people who are interested in history that are going to want to go back and collect those because I'm still collecting cards from over 100 years ago. So what? But from your perspective, the way you have your finger on the pulse of the hobby, how do you see that? Do you, do you see there being risk to, you know, the cards that? guys of, of your vintage, my vintage, like to collect from way back. Uh, do you think that they're going to remain in demand, like way out there, 20, 30, 40, 50 years from now? I do. And, and this is a question that I get asked a lot. And my answer is always the same. You know, there's um, people that collect art and they never saw Da Vinci. You know, Da Vinci has been dead for hundreds of years, but he's still this iconic name. And when anything by him or anything related to him comes up, it commands big, big numbers. He's risen to that level in that industry where uh, nobody's ever going to forget about him. You know, I have an Abraham Lincoln signature with this nice albumin photo on my wall, 150, 160 years old, but great, great name in history, president, politician. Uh, nobody's going to forget about Abraham Lincoln. And so I think when you talk about baseball, Babe Ruth, Mickey Mantle, Jackie Robinson, Hank Aaron. I mean, these guys are going to last forever in the record books, the history books, and the hobby. And you can carry that right on down from basketball, hockey, football, greats of the games. They're great for a reason. They're timeless. What about set collecting? Do you think that like, you know, you, yourself, you've collected back to 52. Um, you know, do you think that that's... I wonder about the importance and relevance of, you know, base cards from, and I'm not talking about today's base. I'm talking about base from the 50s, 60s. You know, are people going to continue to set collect going back there in your opinion, or are they going to stick to the 
the Hall of Famers? And and even then, are they just going to stick to the like the A-list Hall of Famers? Because you just mentioned the the legends, the icons. But what about the and you know I'll say this kind of it's kind of funny because I'm going to say like, what about the secondary level hall of famers where some people will say a hall of famer is a hall of famer, but I don't think that's the case. Can you just uh, give your thoughts on that if you can a little bit? Yeah. So set collecting is something that I think is going to change. You know, you look at somebody like me, I never had to build a set card by card during my active collecting years. Um, If I wanted to go back and build 50s and 60s and 70s, I did, but my parents could walk into a Walmart or a Sears and buy me the complete set, instant gratification, walk into a hobby shop and buy me a complete set. So people my age and certainly now younger than me don't have that experience of busting open packs and building sets. So I think you're going to lose some set collectors from that modern, you know, from the, the newer group of collectors. But that being said, collectors are programmed to love checklists, to love looking for, for, you know, the whole picture. And so I think you're going to have enough people that say, I've got to, I've got to get them all. And I don't care if it's the basest of base cards. I need it alongside my Giannis card. So, um, you know, it's going to change. And maybe the numbers, I could see an argument, I could see a strong argument of why the number of set collectors might diminish, but I don't think it's going to disappear. Yeah. Oh, fair, fair enough. Fair enough. I, you know, and, and then speak a bit to this in terms of, you know, again, the, the legends are going to always be part of the history books, the record books, the, the Ruth, Sarens, Mantles, Mays, those kind of guys. But what about that, that next level of Hall of Famer? And I don't, you know, Mazeroski and Lou Brock and, uh, you know, guys like that, are they going to be Gaylord Perry? Like, guy, are, are these guys, Juan Marichal, are they going to be remembered in 40 years from now how are and if and you know how can they be uh to the extent that they're not you know in that at that same level as ruth mays aaron those guys mantle well you know the guys like the the don suttons and the burt blylevens of the world they are always going to be on that list of hall of famers and that list of hall of famers even if we go out 20 30 years is still going to be less than 400 guys less than 500 guys and so they'll always have that benefit of standing out from the crowd of, of players that have always, you know, that have played the game in the, in the history of the game. But as far as investment, which is a hot button word in our industry, um, as far as investment, I always recommend people stick to the top tier guys, to the guys where there's no debate as to whether or not Babe Ruth belongs in the Hall of Fame. If you're a Cardinal fan and, you know, Lou Brock to me is a, is a no doubt Hall of Famer, but use him as an example. If you're a Cardinal fan and you want to collect Lou Brock because that's who you like, go for it. I'm a, I'm a Cal Ripken guy. Go for it. But, uh, you know, I wouldn't bet your farm on Gaylord Perry or Bruce Suter. And you mentioned like the the checklist thing and, and collectors are, are wired to, to like checklists. Um, how important is the PSA set registry? to the hobby and to, to your, to, to your business or, or your sector of the industry, how important is this PSA set registry and other set registries uh, to your clients? And, and how do you feel it is to the hobby overall? Yeah. The PSA set registry, in my opinion, is one of the greatest marketing inventions in hobby history. Uh, you know, it, it's a tremendous checklist. It's a tremendous resource, um, but it's fueled competition and it's fueled, buying and it's given value to cards that may otherwise not have significant value. And so from an auctioneer's perspective, we can sell those common cards from the 1970s that, you know, ungraded, you might find in a dime box at a show, 
but graded their $1,000 PSA 10s or their $500 PSA 10s. So it just increases the number of cards that we're able to sell, obviously widens our base of buyers, and it keeps the hobby moving forward. You know, it's just one of the areas, one of the elements that keeps the hobby moving forward. Yeah, no, I agree. I think it's important and it's definitely uh, spurred some competition, but it also gives us collectors uh, another formal way to build a set. You're no longer confined to what Tops puts out every year in, in, in their base set. Now you can actually have these custom sets and I think it's it's really cool. Okay, let's go to a few more comments and we're going to get into uh, more REA stuff. But uh, Ian Undercover says, the only show to have the card of the hobby. Appreciate that, Ian. Uh, Peds, first time here. Great to have great to have you for uh, great about to be as a listener. Thank you so much, Peds. Bobby Baseball, great to see you. Game Time says love REA. Picked up a 54 tops. Hank Aaron in a recent auction. Class act all the way. Very nice. Albert Jones, I will I had my social up a few minutes ago. I'll put it up again shortly. So check it out there, please, if you didn't already catch it. Uh, let's see. Uh, Mark says, what is the ratio of times you have to tell clients that their cards aren't worth what you think versus you can't imagine how much this card is worth? It's an interesting question. What, got any stories on that for us, Brian? Yeah, I I, uh, I say that I'm a dream maker and a dream breaker. So I uh, I do have to tell people a fair bit and, and some of my best friends that the cards that they're holding are not super valuable. But one of the most rewarding parts of the job is seeing the impact that we can have on a family whose loved one passed away and they've entrusted us to sell a collection or somebody that's not a collector that found something or inherited something or you know, discovered something at a flea market. I mean, we had a woman who consigned an item to us in the last spring, worked in a hospital on a COVID floor, family member died, left her a jewelry box. Inside the jewelry box was a Babe Ruth card. We sold it for over $300,000. She quit her job. She relocated closer to family. I mean, it was just, it was a, it was a storybook, uh, the way that thing played out. So uh, we, we say that the, the cards are not worth a lot frequently, but the, the number of success stories we have makes up for it. That That's cool. I think everybody uh, in this chat and watching right now is we're all those, uh, those dream breakers at one point or another, because everyone will, will come to us and say, Hey, look what I got. You're in, you collect cards, right? Here's what I got. What do you think? It's always, it's always early nineties, late eighties stuff. Uh, sorry guys. Uh, Valentini, uh, look forward to seeing you at the uh, expo as well. Haven't seen, oh yeah, Valentini Kitchens. Good to see you again. And uh, yeah, definitely look forward to seeing you at the expo. Okay, um, so let's get into uh, Robert Edwards au- Auctions. And you know, you're a young, youngish sort of guy, Brian. Robert Edwards Auctions had been around for a while before. Tell us a little bit about uh, the company from what, you know, before you pr- you acquired it. And uh, you know, how old was the business? When, when was it uh, formed? Yeah, so REA stands for Robert Edward Auctions, and Robert Edward Lifson was the founder of the company. And so he uh, is not an old man himself, but he started working the hobby in the mid-70s, going show to show, buying through mail order, buying through newspaper ads, and developed a reputation as a, a great source of information, a great source of cards, parlayed that into becoming a dealer during the 80s. Uh, and then in the early 90s, set up this auction format. And so in the early 90s, it was done via newspaper and VHS. The premium lots were shown on VHS, but then it morphed into an internet auction around the 2000s and and kind of grew from there. And so I joined him uh, as an employee in 2012 
And then when he retired, he gave me the option to uh, to buy him out. And that's where we are now. And so why was he why was he moving on? For him, it was just uh, a natural progression. So he had been in the hobby at that point for almost 40 years, or if not over 40 years. And he had kids that, uh, you know, he wanted to spend more time with before they went off to college. He had other things that he wanted to pursue. So it was just, uh, you know, time, if you will, for him to hang it up from the day-to-day grind of putting together auctions and spend some time with family and see a new a new generation shepherd the business. And so what was what was it like to take it over and to, to acquire it from him? And, and w- did he stay on and mentor you? Uh, speak to speak to the transition a little bit. Yeah. So I worked for him uh, for, for I started in 2012. So I worked for him for three or four years before I took over the day to day. And I just learned an immense amount from from working with him, working around him and working at REA. I mean, REA was getting the best of the best. Uh, the exposure that I had to material was was incredible. The uh, way that I was forced to learn memorabilia and autographs and things that I had never seen before really was amazing. Uh, so there was a different set of headaches, if you will, when you take over and you, you're now you've got your owner hat on. But luckily, I had been in the thick of it for years with him. And I kind of knew what REA's standards were and what the brand meant and, and what we did and what we did very well. So what were the first couple of years like for you after you took it over? You know, thankfully, they were they were great. Um, we expanded the auction calendar. So REA was historically known for doing one major auction a year. We expanded it to two, and then we expanded it to three. And then now in 2021, we got up to 10 auctions a year. So that was uh, an, uh, just amazing growth that we were able to witness in that five-year period. Hired more people, moved offices, just really grew the business from uh, what it was to now what it is and what it can be. Um, so, you know, great experience. I was lucky that I took over a very strong brand. I was lucky that I had very knowledgeable, competent people around me. Uh, the employees stayed on. So it was it was great. What sort what surprised you the most uh, early on after taking over? Well, for me, it was always, uh, you know, when an auction ends, you say, OK, it's I've got to start building another one. But the pressure is different when you're when you're the guy, when you're in the hot seat, when you've got to deliver. And so as uh, exhilarating as it is to end an auction and see these numbers and see what it all adds up to, you know, my head is we're at zero now. You know, we, we we've done this. The ship has sailed. So just the pressure of getting these auctions built and maintaining the quality, giving people what they want. You know, people expect a lot of us because we've we've delivered for a very long time. So you, every time an auctions, auction ends, you, you go from hero to zero overnight, right? Starting... My, my job's to uh, to keep working on the, the next auction. So. so let's talk about that for a second, because that's something that has always, it continues to amaze me how, and let's face it, there's competition in your space, mm-hmm. but it seems like the the companies, the auction companies have been around for a while, continuously fill their catalogs and, and find more and more quality items and lots to feature in their, in their auctions. How do you continually do that? And and I mean, maybe don't give away your secret sauce here if there is something like that, but, but to the extent you can tell us, how does it keep on happening? How do you keep, how do you continue? And your auction catalogs are among the nicest I've ever seen. They're, they're just, I, I love them. 
they're 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 coffee table type books to me uh, and they're big and there's lots of lots how do you continuously fill them i mean for us one of the one of the big things is our reputation i mean we've been doing it at a high level for so long and we just get phenomenal prices our mailing list is extensive we have clients all over the world we're known for phenomenal material. And yeah, there's competition and maybe the barriers to entry are, are not what they used to be. But, you know, an auction house is not an auction house just because they say they're an auction house. And so for us, the proof has always been in the pudding. We do a great job. We're knowledgeable. We research everything we sell. We get great prices and we treat it like a real business, which is what it is. And we, we keep grinding and we work hard. We develop relationships. We're lucky to have phenomenal clients that support us auction in and auction out. And so we just keep doing what we're really good at. Yeah. Well, it, it, it seems to work. I mean, I've been, I've, I've literally got about, I don't know, three, seven, eight, nine, eleven, like 13 of your catalogs here. I, 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 I use, I use them instead of just sitting on my shelf, they're sitting they're they're on my desk and, uh, and I, I, I do enjoy them. And I always wonder to myself, these things cannot be cheap. To print, first of all, the time that goes into laying them out, writing the descriptions, printing them, and then shipping them. Like what, how important is the, is the, uh, the, the, the hard copy catalog today in the hobby versus just an online link where people can go to, to browse? And like the investment that you must make into these catalogs, speak a little bit to that. And, and why do you continue to publish a, a, paper, a paper catalog? Yeah, it's a tremendous investment. I mean, it, it's hundreds of thousands of dollars, but we've always taken the position that it is the best way to showcase the material. It is one of our best forms of advertising. You know, you said it yourself right there. People people save them. And, uh, and, and that's worked to our benefit sometimes when a loved one goes into a collector's room or a collector's den or a man cave and our catalogs are sitting there because they're substantial and they're worth keeping. So, you know, we've uh, obviously all the bidding's done online. Could we eliminate the catalog? Sure, we could. But we look at it as a reference tool and, and, and research material and just a phenomenal piece of advertising for us and our clients. Yeah, I mean, they are impressive to the point where I've had them just sitting out in my house. And, you know, yeah, back when you used to have company, you know, pre-2020, uh, people would see them and, you know, just... They are wonderful. And, and as Frank says right here, uh, they are great for serving as reference material, which is something that I, yeah, they're just always fun to go back and, and see. And, uh, and then I also find it neat, as I said it at the beginning of the show, I've acquired two cards that have, that have come from your catalog, from your auctions. And it's important to me to have the catalog to go with the card because it's, it's provenance. It shows exactly where you got it from, you know, that same, especially if it's graded in that same serial number and all that. How important do you think that is? Like, am I, is there is there added value to the cards when you can show the auction catalog that they or even, you know, if I were to sell any of these two cards ever, um, I would I would almost want to pass the catalog along with the card to the new buyer. Is that something that is does that go on in the hobby? Is there or am I just kind of, you know, taking it too far? No, it absolutely goes on. I mean, provenance is one of the most important things out there and, and one of the most important things going for any collectible. You know, we're a little different, I think, in that we're one of the only 
we may be the only, if not, we're one of only a handful of auction houses that will tell you if we've submitted a card. We'll tell you if that card came from an old time collector or a notable collector. So we put a lot of information out there that, uh, you know, lets you know that this card didn't just fall from the sky. It's got a, it's got a history. It's got a story. Nothing's been done to it. It came from an original collection and, and, uh, and that's important. Yeah, no, I, I think it is too. I think it's really cool. And I, I, you know, those, those catalogs to me are, are like, they're paired with the cards now. Uh, so here's a question from uh, Skeppy says, what is your take on assigning I appeal levels to draw more attention to high quality cards? So we've, you know, we've seen, um, uh, oh, what's his, uh, Michael Baker, I think, is that Mike? Yeah. MBA. Yeah, yep. yeah. He puts his sticker on some cards people submit them. PWCC has their I appeal ratings. It's a fair question. What are your thoughts on, on, on these special, designations or 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 assessments on cars so great people have called it grading the greater uh, what are your thoughts on that it, it is you know in the context of not all sevens or seven not all eight not all eights are the same not all sevens are the same well i definitely agree with the fact that within certain grade levels there can be tremendous variation in, in eye appeal and we've always made it a, a point to call out if we believe a card is uh, undergraded or strong for the grade or or overgraded for that matter um, as far as these these uh, stickers and, and eye appeal levels, you know, I, I've always taken the position that beauty is in the eye of the uh, of the, hold, the, the holder. So, uh, you know, just because somebody puts a sticker on it that's a certain color or a certain letter doesn't mean that you're going to agree with it. At the end of the day, I think people need to look at the cards themselves, figure out what's important to them. Are they centering guys? Are they corners guys or colors guys? And and, and, you know, make the decision there. Uh, I think the grading companies that we have right now are sufficient. And, and that's kind of where I stand. So I like how you said, you know, we have centering guys, coloring guys. I've got my position on what the, you know, how I order the subgrades, if you will, in terms of importance. How do you personally uh, view the various attributes of a card in terms of their levels of importance? I've always viewed centering as very important. Uh, you know, for me, if I'm looking at a card and it's 90-10 or 95-5 or 80-20, it's going to hit you right away. Uh, sometimes corners don't hit you right away or you need a loop to see the difference or or color. If you're not holding two of the same cards next to each other, maybe you don't understand or realize that there's a slight difference in registration or color. So centering is the one thing where immediately everybody can see that. So I've always viewed that as most important. And then second, you know, I, I do enjoy a sharp corner, uh, depending on the cards, uh, for my vintage cards, I like nice, evenly rounded corners. So, uh, centering's my, centering's my, uh, number one. I, I, I do enjoy a sharp corner. Like, <laughs> <laughs> only, ho- only a hobbyist uh, would understand that comment. You're, you're getting several good t-shirt uh, ideas here. I am. I'm writing them down. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Um, you mentioned registration. Uh, let's talk about registration for a moment, because for me, it's, it's paramount of paramount importance, uh, when it comes to a car, think about the 48 leaf Jackie Robinson, mm-hmm. you know, you, you can have, you can have two car, you can have a, and I, we, I looked at one on collectible live, uh, last week, a PSA 3.5 that can have perfect registration, great centering and color versus a PSA. Uh, there was a PSA five that had terrible registration. Um, do you think that registration or, or focus is underappreciated by the greater? I, I do. So are you, are we on the same page here that registration, print quality, 
focus is underappreciated compared to centering and corners, let's say? Yeah, I mean, I think registration is one of those nuances of a card's condition that maybe you have to be a little bit more seasoned or uh, experienced to to understand, right? So you and I know that the Leaf Jackie Robinson can can uh, come in various forms of registration and and E90-1 Joe Jackson, is he wearing lipstick or is he not wearing lipstick? You know, things like that maybe aren't as apparent to collectors that are getting into this for the first time or or are branching out from what they're used to collecting. So um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's very important, but I think how much you care about it depends on really how much you even know it's an issue. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I want to bring up Karen's uh, comment here from Australia. Great to have you. Karen says that uh, what is the best piece of memorabilia you've come across? Uh, so I'll, I'll interpret that literally and I'll, I'll exclude any cards from the conversation. So two items stick out to me. Uh, first is baseball. We had the honor of selling the ball that Carlton Fisk hit and waved fair in the 1975 game six uh, of the World Series. So that iconic photograph where he's waving the ball fair, we sold that baseball. And that was just very cool because that's something that's a that's an iconic moment. Uh, and then we also sold the the boots that Muhammad Ali wore in the Rumble in the Jungle. And so that was very cool to hold and see and uh, was unlike anything that I had ever handled before. So those those two stick out to me. When you get to, to handle a piece like that and you know that you're only temporarily holding it, it's going to be shipped out or picked up by the new owner. Do you uh, like how do you how do you absorb it? How do you enjoy it? How do you do you take pictures with it? Do you. Do you uh, have the, have pictures and put them up in the office as, as some of the best items to come through REA? Speak to that if you can, just as somebody who gets to actually possess these things for, you know, for a temporary time, like more temporary than someone who's, you know, we're all temporarily holding these things, but, you know, you're truly doing it for a, a shorter period of time. Yeah. So, I mean, for us, a lot of the, uh, a lot of the, the time we spend with these items is researching them and immersing ourselves in the story and the background and the provenance. So that's a great way to um, appreciate and enjoy some of these memorabilia pieces. Um, the catalog, going back to the catalog, is a great way for us to memorialize these pieces. So obviously we take you know, high quality photographs and we do this beautiful glossy catalog. And um, we do have those all around the office for people to reference. And, and uh, yeah, so research and, and the catalog are probably the two easiest answers to that question. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Troy says, I love that REA offers something different than other auction houses. And I want to tie that into a bird on a bat's comment here. It says that uh, REA's pedigree obviously speaks for itself, but here's a chance for you to set, you know, set it apart, Brian. What would you tell someone who is torn between, you know, REA, Golden, PWCC, Heritage, all the other major auction houses, what sets REA apart from the competition? Yeah, so it's, it's an absolutely valid question, and it's one that we uh, get from time to time. For me, the answer has always been the service. The level of service has always been a hallmark of REA. It's been something that was instilled upon us by the founder. It's been something that I have really hammered home with uh, my employees. And so, you know, we're all collectors, and I think that's very important. There are there are people who are coming to us for the first time with the, the items that they've spent their life pursuing. And they want to know that people that understand 
their time and their efforts and their energies are going to be holding the items and caring for the items and talking about their items. So that level of service, the fact that, you know, I as the owner am as likely to answer the phone and speak to you or take your consignment or meet with you. I mean, you are more than just a widget at REA. And that's, that goes a long way with people because you're not doing this necessarily often. You maybe only have one crack at consigning your collection or doing it right. And so you want to know that you can get the people on the phone and they're not just going to, you know, answer all your questions until you sign your name on that contract. You want to know that for the whole ride, they're right there with you. And so that's what we stress to people. Our service is unmatched. And, it, you know, I think business in general comes down to relationships and you do business with people that you like. So, you know, if, if you and your staff are well liked by the people that you're coming across, you're probably going to be able to do business with those people. Right. It really comes down to that. that, that that's been my philosophy. Uh, Alex has a specific question. Brian, when will Maze close the price gap with Mickey Mantle? 52 tops. As an example, the gap is very large between the two players. Doesn't make sense. Same with comparing Aaron to mantle what are your what are your thoughts on that i've heard this come up more and more uh, often recently yeah you know i don't know that he will get much closer than he is already maze to mantle uh, that is you know i thought that there was a very strong case for robinson to close the gap and we've seen that happen lately uh the last year year and a half has been very strong for robinson's pricing i put a client into a psa9 jackie robinson about six years ago from 52 tops and i said Look at what a nine mantle would go for and look at what a nine Robinson goes for. He got it for $90,000 and now it's a million dollar card. Um, and, and so I think Mays is obviously um, probably the, the consensus number three in that set, but he's got a little bit of a ways to climb to get to the mantle level. I don't know that he'll make it. He'll, he, he's, he's extremely valuable. I mean, we've got an eight coming up that we think will be a $200,000 card. But, uh, you know, I don't know that we'll be talking about Maze 8s being million-dollar cards, um, at least in the next couple of years. And then what about sort of on the same uh, thought process here, 51 Bowman, Mickey Mantle rookie, Willie Mays rookie, versus 52 Tops, Mickey Mantle, Willie Mays. How do you see the Bowman card? Like, do you – and, I, you know, full disclosure, I own, I own a 50, uh, 51 Bowman uh, Mickey Mantle, I don't have his tops card. And to me, you know, it's the true rookie card. I believe it's always been under under appreciated by the by the greater hobby for whatever. I, I understand how beautiful the 52 tops is. But what are your thoughts on the 51 true rookies versus the 52 iconic cards? Yeah, you know, it's funny. It, it's going to sound uh, weird to, to have these words come out of my mouth, but I, I think the 51 Mantle is undervalued. Uh, and, and I look even at my own collection, I sold my 51 mantle and I kept my 52 mantle and it came down to icon status. And that's going to be tough to make up. You know, the, uh, we know the T206 Wagner is not the rarest Wagner, but it's iconic and it's the face of the hobby and, and 52 mantles right up there on the Mount Rushmore of the hobby. So I think that there's room for the 51 rookies to run, but I don't know that they'll, I don't know that they'll surpass the uh, the 52s. Yeah, yeah, I think I agree. The, the iconic status of those 52s seems to be a, a hill that would, is just uh, unclimbable by the, by the 51 Bowmans, even though the 51 Bowmans are beautiful in their own right as well. Uh, I like Tony says, loves Brian's Honus Wagner haircut. 
I don't know if that was a plan, but uh, well done. Well done. Ian says Dwyer is a great, well-spoken guest home run. Thank you, Ian. Very nice. Eric's going to be buried with his cards. The rest of us that think we won't, he thinks, he thinks we're crazy. And uh, Ian says, I wonder how much the first REA catalog would sell for. Yeah. Because to me, that it's a, you know, people are, you might be rolling your eyes, but to me, just like old Beckett magazines, right? We, these things become, I, I think they're sort of collectible. And, you know, to have a bookshelf filled with these old auction catalogs as reference material, as just beautiful picture books. Uh, you know, if you can't own a lot of these cards, why not be able to flip through an auction catalog and see them over the years and how the just, just even how they're described and and uh, how the the opening bid or the 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 expected price uh, how the how those evolve? Any comments on that at all, Brian? Yeah, I mean the 1996 REA catalog had a PSA 10 52 mantle buried in the back of the book. Oh. And it went for $121,000, I think. So even internally, we go through these old catalogs and say, what if, you know, this this auction did $3 million. It'd be a $40 million auction today. It has a Wagner, a Baltimore News Ruth, a PSA 10 mantle, a plank, a, you name it, you know, a Ruth jersey, a Garrick jersey. Um, so yeah, it, it's fun. But, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll make the offer to your listeners and to your viewers. We uh, We don't charge for catalogs. So if you want to see what REA is about and if you want to see what our catalogs look like, we've got hundreds of old past catalogs that we'll send out to you for free. Uh, you know, just go on our website and drop a request. There you go. It's a beautiful offer. And uh, trust me when I say, I, like I said, I've got a whole bunch of them on my desk right now, but they are actually at the moment uh, propping up my camera. And, and so <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave them where they are. But uh, they are they are definitely worth worth having if you if you have the chance. That that's a really nice offer for sure. Uh, back to you know relationships. Uh, Business one two four dropped off his card this week to consign, and Brian was the one who greeted me and reviewed the paperwork. Makes all the difference. That's very nice. Uh, on on the you know looking for where we think the hobby's going with some of the uh, vintage guys. Do you think that graded goat vintage autograph cards are still undervalued? I do. Yeah. I mean, this is a segment of the market that we've seen really explode in, in recent years. And, uh, you know, they're not making more of these and, and some of the greats are, are, are passing away or getting into uh, poor health. And, uh, you know, especially now as the price of these high grade examples has risen, there's not the incentive to crack out the cards and get them signed that there used to be. You know, you, you could crack out an Aaron card an Aaron rookie for $500 and get it signed. Now, you know, you're cracking out a seven and it's tens of thousands of dollars. So I think that we're going to see a big explosion in pricing on some of those very key autographed rookies and, and popular cards. Yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. Okay. Let's see. I just want to talk a bit about uh, before we get into the, the Wagner itself, I want to talk a little bit about, um, you know, just how the landscape for, your company and the auction business and the hobby has changed over the last really 18 months, you know, since the hobby has really boomed, um, you know, how, 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 how has the landscape changed for you and how have you had to adapt if at all? Yeah, we had to adapt immediately. So for us, you know, the first thing, obviously like everybody beginning of the pandemic, we didn't know what side we'd come out on. You know, we were a very, uh, uh, non-necessary good and service maybe. So we didn't know how it was going to shake out. 
thankfully, when people were at home, they they needed hobbies. They they spent time digging through their their old stuff. And so what we saw was an explosion in in our industry and in our business and in what we have to offer. So we pivoted immediately and we started adding more auctions. Our client base has exploded in the last 18 months and the hobbies up all around. So it's been great for us. We've uh, expanded what we sell. We're, we're selling Pokemon and gaming stuff now. We've gotten more into the ultra modern to meet demand. So, you know, it's all about being relevant and, and giving the clients what they want. And, you know, it seems to me like the pie is growing. Is the like you said earlier that you went from you know REA went from one auction per year to three to eventually to ten. Is are you maxed out at ten? Is there is there a demand for more than ten? Could you support more than ten, both from a you know customer demand perspective and and a uh, you know lot supply perspective? I mean, honestly, we have clients that ask us to do weekly auctions. I think the appetite for what we offer is substantial and people enjoy buying from us. They enjoy selling with us. And so we're very, very fortunate for that. For us, 10 feels like the right number right now to balance what we have going on. But, um, you know, yeah, we're, we're thankful that we get, we're lucky we get a lot of material and uh, the auctions are all packed with great stuff. So, you know, we'll, we'll keep doing it as long as we can. Yeah, they, 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 they truly, truly are. The National. So you were at the National. You've been, I mean, REA has been at all the Nationals. Um, how important was this year's National? Number one, uh, to be there, to have a presence as a, as a player in our, in our hobby and industry. And also just in terms of, you know, continuing to source new consigners, new, you know, uh, and new customers. Uh, talk about this year's National, if you can, a little bit and just how, how you guys played it. I mean, I've been going to the national since 2003, and this was without a doubt the most exciting national I've ever been at. And remove the Wagner from the equation because that made this national special for us as a company. But the energy in the room was just incredible. The the younger people, collectors that were in the room was so great to see. And so for us, it was important, especially missing last year, to to see and be seen, meet our clients, uh, you know, share our experiences let people know what we're doing and how we're growing and, and what we can offer them. And, and uh, we loved it. It was phenomenal. Yeah. And what, did you meet a ton of new people? Did you find new consigners? Did you, uh, did you leave there feeling like, you know what? And again, outside of having the Wagner and I, you know, even on, on your website or, you know, if you, if you, if you Google search our Robert Edward auctions, Honus Wagner, you're going to get a whole bunch of results right. and you're going to see pictures of your booth at the national with people taking pictures of the card, take all that away, even though it was such a highlight, you know, how successful was this national for REA? It was great. I mean, it, it will go down as one of the most successful nationals, uh, bitter engagement, bitter, new bitter signups, just honestly putting faces to names with existing clients is always positive for us. So uh, at consignments, we took in some incredible material that'll be featured in this upcoming auction. So yeah, just, just a really Great, great show. Yeah. Uh, good evening to Nathan Arnold. This next comment, I'll let you speak to it. I, I guess it might be something that happened that I'm not sure about. But Alex says, did you know that Koontz was going to run off <laughs> with the Wagner? What, what's that all about? Uh, you know, you got you to gotta make good TV. So uh, we we did a uh, an Instagram uh, video with uh, Otia Sports. And uh, we did an interview in front of our Wagner setup. 
and uh, we had armed security. We had 24-hour armed security at the booth, but uh, Jason staged a runaway, and uh, and it was it was in a controlled environment, so there were no no complaints. So you knew you knew it was going to happen, and you were you were okay with it, right? Great. Uh, Jim wants to know: Do you sell raw cards or only graded? We sell a ton of raw, so we sell complete sets. We uh, we will we'll sell it all. You know, graded cards. We generally will sell the big names, the the high value stuff graded, but we sell our fair share of raw. All right, good stuff. Okay, well let's let's talk about the the Honus Wagner that that you know that that broke the record, reclaimed the record, it, and it's where it rightfully needs to be, in, in my opinion, and many other people. So, this particular card. Um, what was the history of this particular copy? Uh, it's it's significance. It seems to me like every Tito Six Wagner has a story. They all have their significance, and it's up to you now. Are you you want to show it? I mean, we may as well have a look at at this card. I mean, there. Oh, just quick and like that. Hey, there it is, everybody. <laughs> that is the six point six million dollar T two O Six Honus Wagner in an SGC three holder. No, put it back up. Put it back up. Let's first, first Wagner ever on Sports Cards Live. Yeah, the, well, the first T two hundred six Wagner ever oh, on right. Sports Cards Live. And I have a surprise for you too. So Uh-oh. I. Oh, he's got two. <laughs> <laughs> two of them. Two of them. Two of them. That you know what? That reminds me. I was at the. Tw- I think it was the twenty thirteen Cleveland National. I was there, and I forget who. It might have been the REA booth. I forget which auction house's booth was. Had two Wagners, and I had them both in my hand. I got a picture of me holding two of them. So I have held two <laughs> Wagners at one time, too. You and I might be a, a, among the small amount of people who've ever had the chance to do that. But uh, we'll talk about them. Tell us about these cards. Yeah, so let's just talk about the three. So phenomenal background. Like you said, every Wagner's got a story. So this one was discovered in 1973 in Long Island. Uh, bought by a famous dealer, Mike Ehrenstein, paid somewhere in the neighborhood of $950 and uh, wanted to make a quick flip. So he consigned it to a card show auction in Detroit. They used to run auctions at card shows and he sold it for $1,100. So he made a quick, you know, 10, 15%. Uh, It was bought by a collector in New Jersey, who's actually still a client of ours. He was at the National this year. We let him hold the card and, and revisit the card that he used to own. Uh, but he kept that card for three years until he sold it to Barry Helper, the famous collector, Barry Helper. Uh, Barry had it in his collection for about five, 10 years, traded it to a Texas collector. That Texas collector kept it in his collection for about 30 years, sold it in 2012, went for $1.2 or $3 million at the time, which was a record back in 2012, and then uh, sold once more privately until coming up for auction this year and selling for $6,606,296. Yeah, <laughs> a number you will never forget. It's <laughs> like your first phone number. That that is so cool, man. I'm still I'm I mean I'm still smiling because of seeing you know not one but but two of them and some of the comment like Ian undercover taking a screenshot. <laughs> I wonder how many people are doing are taking screenshots or rewinding now to take yeah, birds on the bats is thumbnail alert studio. <laughs> wow. Troy says, uh, the only three grade card I would ever want. Thanks for sharing. Now that's an interesting, co- that, that comment right there, I could, I could have a good 20 minute discussion on. So 
Troy, remind remind me about that comment later. I'd like to to dive into that one a little bit later. Joe says uh, beyond a flex, no <laughs> doubt, no doubt at all. So, how did the copy end up at REA? How were you able to be the fortunate person to uh, to broker this card? You know, it really at the end of the day comes down to a word that we've talked about a couple times already, and that's relationship. So uh, we had relationships that were strong. Uh, obviously, our body of work speaks for ourselves. Uh, you know, we've we've handled nine Wagners in the last fifteen years, uh, which is more than any other auction house currently out there. So, you know, when it comes to Wagners, we're we're really the specialists, and so that that got us the card in addition to the uh, great relationship we had. One of the, my next question was going to be how many Wagners have you handled? And you just said, you just said nine tonight, you know, in your hands, it's two uh, graded sports cards. That's Ethan who will be joining us later on. And after hours as I'm seeing double. Yeah. I think we all were, we're just seeing double. Great to have you on the, sh- on this show uh, early on, Ethan. So who's bidding on, on these cards, who's bidding on this, this one. And, and can you show it again? I mean, I think we've had some people come and go. Let's have another look at it. Yeah, that, that's a good look at it. And, and even, you know, I've looked at it closely. The corners are rounded. But like you said earlier, I I don't mind a card that's been well-loved and enjoyed and has that history. You know, it's almost, to me, it's almost better than a, than, than a, a pristine copy. Like, I want to, I don't know, maybe it's just me. And, and obviously, you know, the better condition card is going to be worth more money. But I want a card that survived, you know, not that didn't survive in, in, you know, with white gloves, but that survived shoeboxes and attics and garages and kids and mothers and all that stuff. Um, That's a beautiful copy, even with those rounded corners. Um, What are your thoughts on that? Just on on the condition of this particular three? I mean, I, I, uh, I've seen, so we've sold publicly nine, uh, I have copy 10 in my hands now, in addition to the three. And then I've handled a number of other Wagners that have not made it to the auction block or have been bought by clients of ours. Uh, so, I mean, I've, I've handled pushing 20 Wagners and it wow. is um, this three is hands down the nicest uh, three I've ever seen. And it's one of the top two probably that I've held in my hands um, it, the color is amazing. The corners are beautiful. I mean, it's, it's such a dynamite card. What's the other one you had there? This is an authentic, so it's trimmed. Oh yes. Yeah. And that'll be offered in an upcoming auction. Yes. Yep. And do you have an estimate of what you think it's going to go for? Or do you do that? Can do you do auction houses even do those estimates anymore? Yeah, I mean, so it's it's a fair question. It's one that we get a bunch. Uh, I mean, something like this should go north of $1.52 million, even in this condition. Um, wow. But, you know, the sky's the limit. No, I don't think a lot of people thought 6.6 six would be the end number on the three. So when it comes to Wagners, if you want one, you don't have a lot of cha- uh, chances at them. Not when it comes to the T206. So as mentioned, I've purchased two cards from you over the years, and I'm, I, know I may as well do a, bit, a little bit of show and tell here as well. One of them is a Honus Wagner card that I bought out of your catalog, uh, and I bought it because for a couple of reasons. Number one is because, well, first, I was, I was really close to buying a, co- a nicer copy at the National, so I saw the card in hand, and then it, you had a lower grade in the catalog, and I, I, I won the auction. But I bought it because 
I don't, I know. I mean, I, you know, never say never sure, but I doubt I'm ever going to own a T206 Wagner. And I understand the importance of the player and that card, but I thought, you know, there's another vintage card from the same era, the same year, basically. And I think it's even a little bit, I like the coloring better. So I own this, this card I bought from you. It's the American Caramel E90-2. It's a PSA 2. And I love this card. And I think the pop, I don't remember the pop on it, but I don't know that it's much different than the T206. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on a card like this as far as, you know, collectability, investability, uh, mark the market's perception of it and, and, and why it falls so far behind the T206 in terms of its value? Like this is worth a fraction fraction and what's lower what's smaller than a fraction of the t206 so speak kind of speak to that a bit if you can yeah i mean i love i love the card i own one myself i also own a two um it's it's a great card i can't tell you how many t206 sets we've got where that card has been in the wagner position Uh, oh really you know so so people view it as a, a worthy uh, second option to the T206. So I think it's great. I mean, uh, Wagner's one of those guys we talked earlier about top tier Hall of Famers. He's never going to go out of that that circle of top tier guys. So any card of Wagner from his playing days, I think is a solid investment. I love that card. I think the blue background when done right is super captivating. So uh, big fan. Yeah, I love the blue background. I love the the portrait, the image of him. Can you hold up yours, one, uh, the three? Just to, I'll put it on this side. Maybe move it to the other side to get them closer together. Someone, somebody, please screenshot this and send it to me on Instagram. Smile for the camera. Somebody, please screenshot this, or I'll have to come back and do it. That's pretty cool, right there. I mean, they're not the same card, obviously, but it would would be neat if they were. But uh, the images, the his face is different in both. I I mean, they're both very nice, but. Uh, I'm very happy to have this. I think it's a great alternative uh, to the T206 for anyone who's interested. And it's a two. It's got a bit of a stain down the corner here. The back's got some, you know, all sorts of different things going on. Can we see the back of uh, of the, your three? Sweet cap back. Yeah, that's just, uh, it's very cool. Yep. Great card. Great card. So I'll show the other card that I bought from you now, okay? Yeah. Again, this is, this is a... Uh, a show and tell everybody if you don't mind and um you know again only because i purchased both of these cards from rea and i have the catalogs to go along with them this is probably i mean my favorite you know brian everyone will always ask you especially if you have an extensive collection like what's what's your favorite card in your collection and i collect hall of famers rookies all sports you know i'm i'm, I'm known for saying gretzky you know here the gretzky rookie by the way thanks to whoever sold me this on facebook recently uh um cool shirt but uh my 48 leaf jackie is like my favorite card but this is right up there so this is the 33 gaudi babe ruth in an sgc5 holder that i purchased from you uh going back again i don't remember do you remember when this was 20 maybe 13 or i was gonna say probably seven or eight years ago maybe yeah yeah so because i'm showing it and it's an important card too where does this card rank in all time, in, like among the T, the Tito Six Wagner, the Fifty Two Tops Mickey Mantle? How important is this card? Was I was I smart to to purchase this one when I did? Well, absolutely. I mean, Gaudi Ruth's is one of those uh, iconic cards. Uh, Gaudi Ruth and Gehrig, people love. I've got them in my collection. Um, 
you know, the the rookie from 1916 is is not attainable for a lot of people. And even some of the um, the early Ruth cards that people might not be familiar with command huge, huge amounts of money. So Gaudis, they're escalating in price substantially now. But for a long time, and and even now in the context of some of the earlier cards, they're still they're still affordable. Um, so yeah, phenomenal card. We saw a PSA nine just went for over four million dollars in that card. So yeah, I, I, that was a great great purchase. And if you doubt it, I'll buy it back from you at what you paid. <laughs> no, that, that's okay. <laughs> I'm gonna. It's funny when I bought my. Uh... My, I have a PSA 8 Bobby Orr rookie that I bought from, um, I think I bought it from Memory Lane back in 2008. And I saw those guys at a national, I don't know, eight years later, and they made me the same offer. I'll buy it back to you for what you paid. Oh, no, they offered me double. They offered me double what you paid for it. I, I could I could pay you double. Yeah, I still said no. I, yeah, sure. I still said uh, no thanks. Not for sale. Uh, not for sale, not for trade. The original NFT in our hobby, not for trade. So who's... who? I mean, you're not going to answer, but who bought the Wagner? Who bought the SGC3? Can't tell you that, but I can tell you that it's somebody that appreciates the the history of the card, and it's somebody that appreciates its status in the hobby, and it's somebody that understands the importance of it. And also at this price level, it's somebody that believes that it's a, a, a worthwhile investment. So, you know, you asked earlier, and we didn't touch on it, who who bids on these cards? And it's people from all walks of life. It's people from all approaches. There are people that are buying it because they think it's a, a safe store of value. They think it's a good uh, long-term hold. They think it's something that fits into their collection. They don't own any cards, but they own a Picasso and they own you know, a, a Porsche and they, they own these big names and these various different disciplines. So um, yeah, all, all types of people bid on these cards. And is that is it going into a a collection that that is worthy of it. But look, any collection that has a Wagner automatically becomes a top tier collection. <laughs> so yeah, I have I have no uh, no qualms with the collection that it's going into. I think it's going to be really really loved and appreciated and uh, and preserved and and continue the great story. Are what, what are we gonna? Do you think that we're gonna um, that the buyer is going to make it public who they are? I don't know. Uh, I really don't. I mean, if I had to guess, I'd say no, not at least immediately, maybe maybe sometime down the road. But uh, for now, just enjoying the anonymity. What's been the aftermath uh, for you uh, since the sale became public in August? It's been phenomenal. Obviously, you know, this made worldwide news. Uh, the Monday after the auction ended, I spent four hours straight doing interviews um, so it's, it's been great for the hobby. Obviously we knew that this was going to be a great hobby story. And then for the, for the, uh, REA component, you know, we're, we're unearthing tremendous new material. We've picked up, uh, several collections, three that immediately come to mind that are tobacco specific that had been in the same families for generations that they read the news about this and they, they came out. All of them are six-figure collections. All of them are fresh, never before seen, not a single graded card in those collections. Um, and so, you know, that that's just exciting for us. We're, we're card dorks. You know, we love to discover stuff and, and see one of these collections had 13 broadleaf uh, advertising backs, which are super rare, a dozen 350 series, one 460 series. 
Um, so, you know, you just never know what's hiding out there. And so this brought material to the forefront for us and then ultimately for our clients. So the PR has been great. Uh, so the notoriety and what do you, how do you feel? We, we touched on it before, but in this context, how do you, do you feel that the sale is good for the hobby and, and why, if so? I think the sales phenomenal for the hobby. So, you know, when you see numbers like this thrown around, uh, it legitimizes what we all do and what we all love, you know? So these are numbers that are not common in our, in our industry. They've become more, you know, seven figure sales have become more common in the last couple of years, but this, this broke the record by over a million dollars. Um, and so this is uncharted territory. And so it brings prestige, it brings news, it brings attention, publicity, and the more people you can get in here, you know, in the short term, you might think, oh, it's going to run up the prices and it's going to make it harder for me to get what I want. But in the long term, these are more people that can sustain the value of your collection, can buy it when you decide the time is right to sell. Um, it, it's all positive. Yeah, no, yeah, for for sure. I mean, obviously, just the just the fact that it's making worldwide news is uh, bringing attention to the hobby, and I think everyone everyone should benefit from that. Uh, Joe has a question. He says, "Are most of these heavy hitters transferred in person? Is there a cutoff for in person pickup, or is is a specific to each customer?" Uh, so, you know, on a card like this, it's, it's transferred in person in the sense that we don't drop it in the mail. It, it's going to be, uh, it's armored courier. So there is a, an armored courier that would transport it from us to the buyer. It traveled by armored car to the national. It had 24 hour security at the national, um, pickup. We allow people to pick up stuff, you know, sales tax implications are, are, are ever changing here in the States. So that's been a little bit of a wrinkle for some, for some people, but uh, no, you, we, if, if you want to pick it up and, and you pay the taxes or you're, you're a tax exempt, we'd love to see you. Yeah. And can you buy a card from you during the year and then pick it up at the national? Uh, so again, it goes to sales tax implications, but yeah, I mean, if you, uh, if you bought a card from us in our April auction and you wanted to pick it up in, in, july or august at the national and you wanted to pay whatever applicable fees absolutely we've we've done that for people no problem you mentioned that you do 10 auctions a month how are they staggered throughout the year what what are they monthly or yeah so we have um we have three major catalog auctions that's uh april july into august and november into december those are our, our three major auctions and then we have seven internet only auctions that are in those non catalog auction months. And those are predominantly graded encapsulated and authenticated items. So there's at least one day of an REA auction every month. Okay. That, that's pretty cool. All right. I want to, I want to sort of switch focus a little bit. I want to ask, you know, as the hobby has exploded over the last 18 or so months, uh, two years now, I, I, we're coming up on two years of that. One of the newer sort of uh, business models we've seen is fractional investing, fractional ownership, those sorts of platforms. Curious your take on, um, you know, how, how do you see fractional ownership and the, the players in that, in that space fitting into the overall hobby landscape? Yeah, I, I think it's been a very interesting development. I've heard um, tremendous pros and tremendous cons, or, or, or at least positive and negative feedback from our clients. So, you know, the negative is that you've got some very old school collectors, diehard collectors that they, they want to be able to do this with the card and they want to be able to show their friends. 
and they're not going to get that same uh, cachet if they say, hey, I own, you know, 1% or I own 37 shares of this. But on the flip side, there are people uh, that will never even be able to pay the, the buyer's premium on cards like this. And they will relish the opportunity to get in and say they at least own a piece of it. So I think it fills a, a, a void, a niche in the hobby that we'll see. And as prices continue to escalate, you know, the disparity between what you can buy and what you can't will probably only grow. And so I think fractionalization is poised to offer a very important service. Yeah, cool. Okay, curious on your thoughts on that. And um, anything else? Uh, anything else that you wanted to chat about? I mean, I, I have, I have, I guess my final question. Uh, unless there's anything else that you wanted to talk about, Brian, my final question to you would be: Where do you see the hobby heading? Just you know, how do you see the next five years playing out? Uh, you know, sort of when you compare it to what the last year, two years has been. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I'm very bullish on the hobby. I think the hobby's in for some very exciting times. I think we've seen a lot of innovation. I think we've seen uh, some consolidation, which is not necessarily a bad thing for the hobby. And I think that we'll continue to see innovation and consolidation, and and that'll just make the collecting experience likely better um, for a lot of people. Uh, and maybe there'll be wrinkles or, or maybe there'll be um, unintended consequences, and we'll just have to see how those play out. But I'm very bullish on the hobby. I think that there's room to run in a lot of these different segments of the hobby. I think, uh, you know, we talked about autographed vintage cards earlier, uh, photography, tickets, uh, game used memorabilia even. I think those are areas of the hobby that will continue to see escalation in prices, and and that'll be fun to watch. So uh, I think the hobby's in for some great days, and and I, I love what I'm seeing. I have another question. What advice would you give somebody who's uh, looking to start up a, a company or a business in the hobby? We're seeing more and more of that, whether it's from display or just, you know, deal people buying and selling cards. Uh, we've seen we've seen lots in the display area, people opening up stores. What advice would you give someone who's coming into the hobby now for, from yourself, who's been in the, in the working in this industry for so long now? Well, I mean, obviously, you want to make sure that whatever good or service you're providing meets a need. So, you know, there's uh, a lot of areas of the hobby where the barrier to entry is not that substantial. And you want to make sure you don't get caught up in, in thinking something's a good idea, but then nobody needs it or wants it. So from a basic business perspective, make sure you're meeting an, a need. Uh, if you want to be successful, obviously, just, just say what you're going to do. Do it well. Do it right. Reputation. We, can't, we, we talked about it earlier. We come back to it frequently. You know, it's... Uh, it's tough to build and easy to ruin. And so that's what we believe here at REA. Our reputation carries us, gets us great results. We deliver for our clients. So you know, that's our recipe for success. Yeah, good good advice. Appreciate that. I hope uh, people take it to heart if you're out there looking to start something. And Timeless Cardboard says, do non-dealers have the ability to have an account with REA? Absolutely, absolutely. So most of our, our clients are collectors. Uh, obviously, we do deal with dealers and we uh, we sell to dealers, but we 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 will take bids from anybody. So if you want to join our website, it's robertedwardauctions.com and we have an auction going right now. You can sign up and uh, we'd love to have you involved. Awesome. All right. So, well, I think, man, I think uh, I think we're good to wrap up. I'm going to be back in about 10 minutes. 
with Ethan. We're going to go on after hours. I want I want to thank everybody for watching. If you're new to the channel, if, uh, if, if Brian or REA kind of brought you here tonight, I want to thank Brian and REA for uh, sharing that you'd be on the show, Brian. And if you're new, please uh, subscribe to this show, to this channel. I bring in interviews every Saturday night, have been since April of 2020. This is episode number 118 of The Early Show. So, uh, Brian, I do want to uh, thank thank you so much for coming on and and uh, and for being approachable. The National, where we did sort of, a, I guess, re-meet. We had, we had met before briefly. But um, so thanks for agreeing to come on. Thank you for why don't we you, you have to show that card one more time uh, before before we call it quits here, though. Let's say I got to get my camera orientation. There we go, guys. There you go. You're rarely I love. There you go. There's a smile. You're rarely going to see two T206 Honus Wagner's in one on one screenshot ever again. So enjoy the moment, uh, everybody watching and uh just want to say, uh, Troy says, thank you. Great show. Great guest. Thank you, Brian. Appreciate it. Thank you, Nathan Arnold. Appreciate the fantastic coverage comment. Thank you, Frank. Thank you, Terry. Uh, Terry says, REA needs more hockey. Terry says that to everybody. And uh, studio, thanks for the session now to find that first book from REA. All right, Brian. Uh, again, everybody be back in 10 minutes with Ethan. Check it out on, on After Hours. If you're not yet subscribed to the channel, please do. I'll be live on the Collectible YouTube channel, youtube.com slash collectible app tomorrow at seven o'clock Eastern. I'm going to throw that up there right now on the ticker. Come check it out. And uh, thank you, Albert Jones. Thank you, studio. Brian, thank you. Final comments from you and then we're done. No, I, I had a blast. I could talk cards for, for days. So I appreciate you having me on. You do a great job with the show. And uh, I'll just reiterate, anybody is welcome to request a catalog, join our website to bid. We've got an auction going on now through the 24th of the month, 1900 lots. And we have another catalog auction in November. So plenty, plenty to see. We'd love to have you. Well, great for having you. And I'll tell you what, Nick, when you break the, the record again, we'll have you back on. All right. All right. All right. Thank you, Brian. Hang tight right there, everybody else. See you on After Hours. If not, we'll see you next week. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.